Hello everybody, it is Friday, February 5th, 2016, and this is Sonali Kohatkar, host of Uprising Uncut, and once more I am recording a program one day later than I should have. I aspire for Thursday nights, but somehow Thursday nights keep getting caught up with other things, so it's Friday. And you can hear my son, my eight-year-old son, doing piano practice in the background, by the way, sorry about that. Hopefully it isn't terribly distracting, but I'm feeling too lazy to go into my closet and stand up. Um, and um, I'm sitting at my office, my home office, so it's a little bit easier. Anyway, sorry about that. Um, lots of stuff happening this week. Yet another Democratic debate in New Hampshire ahead of the um, next uh, primary race and also of course nail-biting results from the Iowa caucuses on Monday actually let me talk about Iowa before we get into New Hampshire um, so I don't know how many of you were basically watching the results coming in on Monday night in Iowa um, but I just couldn't help myself because the polls were just very close you know if it had been a slam dunk I wouldn't have bothered for, for like one candidate or another but they were so close leading up to the race you know one poll showed Hillary ahead by a couple of points the next poll showed Bernie ahead by like half a point and then eventually even people in the media were like oh it's too close to call <laughs> so um, so I just kept going to the New York Times actually the New York Times and the Washington Post both had a good visual um, representation of the results as they were coming in Republican race was like decided way early um, and they you know right away picked surprisingly actually Ted Cruz as the winner of the Iowa caucuses with Trump just a few points later but the Sanders Clinton matchup was just really tight so <laughs> I just kept refreshing that browser on my iPhone as I was you know having dinner after dinner watching TV with my husband <laughs> getting ready for bed I just kept refreshing it and the the point difference between the percentage point difference between Clinton and Sanders kept narrowing and narrowing there was a like a three percentage point difference with Clinton Clinton and the lead sometime around dinner time Pacific time and then by bedtime there was a point two or no 0.3 percent lead on uh from by clinton which was really remarkable and then the next day that shrunk to 0.2 percent once they had counted all the precincts so that was really bizarre um and of course the media just sort of declared clinton the winner even though there was such a tiny difference between the two candidates that it was essentially a tie um also there was this bizarre thing happening at some precincts at least six possibly seven precincts where um, the votes were tied and or the number of delegates rather were tied and so there had to be a tiebreaker there had to be like one delegate of an odd number assigned to one of the two candidates and so it was decided by a coin flip and apparently Hillary Clinton won six out of seven or possibly six out of six. I'm still not clear. There's some reports saying that Sanders won one to coin toss, the seventh one. But anyway, just winning six out of six is just extremely lucky. Um, uh, my husband and I calculated the next morning that she would actually, uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, well, it was a one in 64 chance, um, something like 1.5% chance of winning six coin tosses. Um, <clears throat> 
so that was really bizarre. Um, I, I wrote about it for Tristig this week, so you can check out my latest article at tristig.com. So that was the Iowa caucuses, very interesting, and you know, I just kind of couldn't help myself. I mean, I try not to get caught up in the horse race aspect of um, elections, but this one was just really interesting. Interesting, not just because they were so close, but because the Iowa caucuses, which are the first primary race of the if any election, are seen as kind of the trendsetter. You know, <laughs> Iowa holds their caucus extremely early, probably to get attention for you know at least one thing <laughs> not to knock Iowans but frankly what is Iowa really known for besides having the earliest primary race um, I apologize in advance for insulting any Iowans um, in my vast <laughs> audience but um, yeah so so you know eight years ago when Clinton resoundingly lost to Obama well, it wasn't a huge loss but it was enough of a loss that it was clear that Obama was the winner um, that seemed to sort of set the stage. It was shocking to people that he won Iowa and then he just won one state after another other after that. And of course, that was um, the history in the making. And, um, and so Iowa tends to set the stage for these things. And so that's why, of course, it was really, really interesting to, to watch that go down. Not also to mention that, oh my God, these caucuses are so complicated. I was trying to wrap my head around them. There's like something like 99 precincts. Or maybe there's a thousand precincts. I'm really not sure. There's districts and then there's precincts and then there's counties and then there's the state and then there's the delegates and um, there's no actual voting or maybe there is voting. Anyway, they're supposed to try to come to some sort of consensus and they caucus with one another. If your candidate doesn't get a certain percentage, then you are free to leave or you join another, you know, candidate. It's just so complicated. I, I read up on it um, at one point, and you know, for the five minutes after I read how it worked, I got it, and then I promptly forgot because it was just too complicated. So, anyway, thankfully, there's not that many other states that caucus, and most of the rest just do straight up, you know, election like voting, um, which is what is going to happen in New Hampshire next Tuesday. And there, there's no contest. I mean, Sanders just basically has a lock on the vote. It's not that surprising. It's a primarily white state. It borders uh, his state of Vermont, so he's he has name recognition there, and so he's gonna just you know win that by a huge margin. But I think the Clinton folks are not that worried about it. Um, they should be worried, but somehow they're not that worried about it. But they are going to. Um, possibly win other states. And it remains to be seen how, how this all plays out. So my article with Truth Dig was, um, you know, admitting how kind of tempting and seductive it is to, to get caught up in these horse races. But And it dominates the news, of course. And it's dominating my podcast right now. <laughs> but there's all this other shit happening in the world that we don't pay attention to. And frankly, the primary races, they can be a bit of a distraction. Um, the debates are great because, especially on the Democratic side, um, especially this time around, they've been you know, better than usual because they've actually tackled issues. Um, there's actually been a lot of sort of discussion on issues, probably because of Sanders being in the race. Um, but uh, the elections themselves are, you know, uh, they're just not that interesting. And speaking of debates, there was a debate on Thursday night um, in New Hampshire. There's going to be five more debates. And I think Thursday night's debate was like the first of those last five debates. I have to admit, I couldn't watch it. I just didn't watch it. How many more times can I watch Sanders and Clinton debate one another? Okay, the only difference was that Martin O'Malley wasn't participating this time because he's withdrawn. <laughs> you know, big surprise. And, you know, he was kind of a refreshing um, figure in some of these debates. So anyways, down to Clinton and Sanders, which everybody knew it would be. And I'm, honestly, I just I can't sit through another debate between these two. Um, but I interviewed on, on Uprising 
this morning, um, which will air on Monday's edition of uh, Uprising, KPFK and KPFA, I interviewed Jeff Cohen, who's you know longtime like media critic. Um, he's the founder of one of my favorite media organizations, Fair Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. And he just had this, this he was brilliant, first of all. Cohen is just a brilliant um, spokesperson, writer, thinker. But he just, ha- we, we had this wonderful conversation about how, you know, all the things that Sanders says about Clinton are true, that she's an establishment candidate, that it's laughable that she calls herself a progressive. But when she sort of challenges him, prove that I'm, you know, not a progressive. How could you not call me a progressive? He kind of backs down. I mean, you know, the biggest thing that he has been able to say is that she takes money from Wall Street. She's got campaign contributions and she's taken speaking speaking fees from the likes of Goldman Sachs. Okay, that's all well and good, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. According to Cohen, there are so many more things he could say to prove she is a corporate shill and has been right from the start of her career. You know, and he pointed out how in Arkansas after she graduated, you know, she actually went and worked for some uh, public service organization for a few years and then within a few years had joined the biggest um, profile corporate firm, law firm in Arkansas that's, you know, served big business. He, he quoted some of her, you know, sentences that she had said in the past of basically, you know, if you're a lawyer, how could you not work for a bank? Um, and pointed out that she s- sat on the board. She was the first woman to sit on the board of Walmart, <laughs> you know. It's, it's true. Sanders should be pointing that out continuously. Um, boy, think about how much more resonance he would have among his supporters if he were to just go after her in you know every possible way, in in on policy. Obviously, that's what I mean. Not in every possible way, <laughs> in 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 ways that are um, that have integrity and truthfulness and honesty. So that was a really interesting conversation, um, and we talked about how Clinton basically said. How can you say I'm not part of the? How can you say I'm part of the establishment? I'm the first, you know, woman, um, you know, who could be the first woman nominee of this of, of the Democratic Party and could go on to win the Democratic nomination. How, I mean, the the presidency. How how could you call me part of the establishment? And you know, God, what a so just basically because she's a woman running for president, that in her mind that automatically makes her not part of the establishment, which is utter bullshit because, you know, Madeleine Albright was part of the establishment. Condoleezza Rice was part of the establishment. Carly Fiorina, as Jeff Cohn pointed out, were part of the establishment. Making, you know, just just because they were women doesn't make them not part of the establishment, doesn't automatically (laughs) exempt you from being part of the establishment. You likely had to break many glass ceilings to reach where you were in order to join the establishment. So clearly, those are some great points that Sanders could be making on Clinton, but but has been holding back to his detriment. I think, I think it's a it's a much closer race than it than it could be because he isn't, you know, <laughs> speaking up uh, a lot more than he could be. All right, that is it for the election. Boy, I've spent about a third of my time on the podcast talking about about elections. Um, so uh, lots of other things happening in the world okay the zika virus i think last week i talked about how oh it's not that you know the fears of it are overblown um this virus has been around since 1947 or it's been known you know to be around that those first time was discovered but it's kind of weird that nobody knows that much about it and this kind of reminds me of the whole story on ebola ebola had been around a long time 
But it was only when it threatened to infect literally the the West, Europe and the US, that all of a sudden there was all this scrambling to get research done and, and develop a virus. It might be the same with Zika. Now it turns out, or at least, you know, there's been some rumors and possibly a story, I'm not sure how verifiable it is or verified it is, um, that uh, that somebody got Zika virus through sexual transmission. They basically got the virus from having sex with them, not just being bitten by a mosquito that bit another infected person. I mean, that's kind of sad that we're now discovering new things about a potentially dangerous virus that's been around for decades, for half a century. Um, we, you know, because of course it always, you know, it, it infects and impacts those other people over there, those people in the global south, those people that we don't really think about, those those pe- brown people who speak different languages, and so we don't really uh, scientists, you know, don't get the resources they need to to do the right kind of research on these on these kinds of um, viruses. So that so it really remains to be seen now what this virus will do, how it'll turn out, what it'll what its um, impacts are going to be, and of course the fear for pregnant women remains absolutely terrifying. Um, The other issues that I wanted to talk about on my podcast this week was the fact that I thought I would say something a little bit um, personal, which is that I had a a wonderful um, sale on Wednesday. There's There's a local farmer's market here. I live in Pasadena, a block south of Altadena, and they have a farmer's market every Wednesday. And the first Wednesday of the month, they have added an arts and crafts component. And some of you may know I'm an artist. I, I do all sorts of Martha Stewarty type things. <laughs> and so I got to sell my stuff at a local farmer's market. I, you know, set up a canopy and, and a booth and I sold my arts and crafts. So I crochet hats and I, I paint. Um, so I had all my stuff set up and it got me thinking about how society treats artists. You know, I, I was getting somewhere. I wasn't just using it as a segue to talk about my hobbies. Um, but um, by the way, you can follow me at Instagram at Sonali Kohatkar if you want to see some of my paintings. Okay, I'm done with the shameless self-promotion. Um, but the 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 experience that I had got me thinking about artists, and it's not my first time selling selling my stuff. I've, I've sold my arts and crafts at lots of different markets, you know, often like holiday sales and things like that. Um, and you know, we live in such a weird time. Uh, the way in which our society treats artists, because of technology today, because of digital technology, because of online capabilities, social media, us being able to communicate with one another through, you know outlets like Instagram, if you're an artist, you are expected to have, one, your own website, two, your own Facebook page. This is separate from your personal Facebook profile. You're expected to have an artist Facebook page, as I found out recently when I submitted some of my artwork to a group exhibit. Three, you're expected to have your own artist Twitter feed. You are definitely expected to have your own Instagram account. In fact, Instagram is supposed to be like the lifeline for artists. Five, you're supposed to have an Etsy shop at which you can sell all uh, of your uh, items. And of course, when you sell all of your items, you have to put up, you have to take pictures of your items, write descriptions, price them, um, (laughs) conduct the transactions. So you have to also have a PayPal account and ship the items to your customers. So you become the distributor, you become the producer, you become the salesperson, you become, you, you are basically a one person 
producer of, of artwork, that is expected these days. If you're an artist, you're basically expected to have all of these things. And by the way, all those platforms have to coordinate with one another. They have to be consistent with one another. And then when you sell phys- at physically at, at like sales, farmers markets, holiday sales, bazaars, craft sales, etc., you are expected to pay a fee usually to be part of this booth. I'm recording my podcast. Please don't interrupt. Oh, oh, oh okay. Oh, this is my son. Come here. I'll say goodnight to you on, on the air. Good night, my love. I love Good you. Say hi to my listeners for my podcast. Okay. Say hi. Hi. Tell them your name. My name is Neil. How old are you? Eight. Oh, you're so cute. They can't see how handsome and awesome you are. I love you. Okay. Okay, you're done with piano practice? Yep. Okay, I'll see you tomorrow. Okay. I love you. Love you too. Okay, close the door on your way out, okay? <laughs> this is, after all, an uncut podcast. I literally don't ed- do any edits. And if you're hearing a rumbling sound in the background, that's because the wall of my home office um, butts up against my laundry room. <laughs> and so my husband has a dryer going right now. Okay, so what I was saying was, yes, so you, you go to a farmer's market or any kind of a sale, and you're expected to pay a fee just to participate. You are usually expected to bring your own tables, your own canopies, your own lighting, your tablecloths, your entire setup, your cash box, your PayPal, your little square attached to your phone so that you can swipe credit cards, uh, change for your cash box. And you are then expected to, of course, advertise the fact that you will be at that market um, to your fans and followers and friends, etc., on all of your various social media. And at the end of the night, you are lucky if you make even the amount of money that you paid to participate in said market, buy your canopy, all of the time you spent, you know, setting everything up, taking everything down, the, the time you spent making your products. And it, bec- and, and it becomes, in the end, basically the artist doing society a massive favor by existing and sharing their beautiful products. Um, Nobody wants to pay top dollar or even fair prices for their artwork. I'll give you an example. I paint um, serving trays. (laughs) I like to have functional art. I like to paint canvases too, but you have to price your canvases higher because people like to feel like they're, you know, paying for art. That's stuff that you can hang on your wall. So sometimes I like to make functional art. Um, it's it's makes people feel like less like they're kind of putting, you know, make, making a, a huge purchase. So I, I buy unfinished wooden serving trays and I paint them like a, you know, have a painting. I varnish them so they're friendly, you know, that they're actually functional. And I sell them. And I thought to myself, okay, the amount of time that I spent creating these, the fact that I had to spend like $7 for the actual tray itself. And of course, the paint itself and the varnish and all the time that I spent doing this on all fairness I should be charging 80 or 90 dollars for this tray there's no way anybody would spend that much money on this tray so I marked them at 40 dollars and even that people were trying to haggle and so I finally like sold one of those trays for 35 dollars woman really loved the tray several people loved the trays and they were like oh my god I love this tray it's so beautiful but they saw $40 as just too much on this beautiful hand-painted, beautiful, you know, of course I'm biased, this <laughs> is my work. I think it's beautiful, and some other people thought so too, on this on this tray that 
you know, wasn't an original work of art. Nothing else like it. Like, I, I everything I produce is unique. Like, I don't mass produce anything. I, I make one thing, and then the second thing that I make is usually entirely different. So it's just, it's really hard. So nobody really wants to, to drop a lot of dollars, especially at a farmer's market, for art, for original art. And um, and then you just think, yet everybody wants to have artists around, you know? Um, you want to be able to say, oh, we've got this wonderful craft sale with these great artisanal, handmade, locally produced um, artworks, one of a kind, blah, 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 you name it, locally sourced, you know, organic, etc., etc., etc. So they want to have artists in their community. They want to have artists offering their materials and they want artists to sh- offer it in extremely low prices. And basically you end up with bi- not even minimum wage. I can, I promise you a vast majority of artists like this are not even breaking even. They're probably making a loss if you count the time that they spend, the energy that they put into it, the, the, the materials that they spend money on, the, the amount of um, materials they have to buy and the infrastructure they have to set up just to, just to get stuff sold. It's ridiculous. I mean, they're basically begging people to buy their stuff um, instead of being honored. Um, you know, this is, this is why we need government subsidies for artists. Like how amazing it would be if just like we had during FDR's reign when we had the Works Progress Administration, where artists were paid to be artists that could share their work w- you know, in ways that were affordable, that could actually make a living as artists uh, because artists you know, are, are valuable to society. Um, they, they are, you know, they're hugely important in our society. And it would be wonderful if they didn't have to worry about putting food on the table. Anyway, um, apparently it is a much easier, uh, artists have a much easier time living in countries like Canada. And I only know this because my older, my younger sister um, lives in Vancouver. She is a, um, she is, she works in video, in the video game industry. And she loves the city of Vancouver because it's just art all the time everywhere. There's like live music on the streets, there's festivals, there's, and all this stuff. And, and you know most of these things are supported by like government grants most uh, uh, artists and and most of the the kinds of art, artsy and artistic programs and projects are supported by government grants and i just think god how amazing it would be if we had that kind of of, of support structure for artists here so that's my artists rant today um you know and, and so think about it the next time you go to a crafts fair or you see somebody selling something you know you go to venice beach and you see a beautiful artist um an artist selling beautiful things um or you go to an etsy shop and you think oh my god that is just so totally overpriced think about the time that was spent getting that product to you most artists don't have economies of scale you know they don't buy like i, I can't if i were to if i was a mass producer of, of handmade wooden trays painted trays i would be able to buy them in bulk and wholesale and i'd probably pay like a couple of bucks per uh, unfinished wooden tray instead of the seven dollars that i have to pay to michael's or joanne's um and so i would be able to source all of my materials at much much lower prices and pretty soon i'd start a factory and pretty soon they wouldn't be beautiful handmade one-of-a-kind hand-painted things so you know but if I had a a place where I could get low-cost materials because the government subsidized it or I was you know able to work part-time at least as an as an artist that got supported by the government then I could sell trays easily for $35 to people who wanted them without feeling like I was literally giving my stuff away so the next time you see an artist 
do support them. Don't bulk at the price. Don't try to bargain them down. In fact, add on an extra five or ten bucks, which sometimes people have done to me, which is just really nice. I just sold a, a handmade crocheted scarf to this woman who was buying a scarf for her, um, her, her girlfriend. Um, and she insisted it was a 20. I marked it at $25. Honestly, it took me hours and hours and hours to make. It was this very like fluffy scarf, very like convoluted. I, I you know, I had years and made it a couple of years ago so i was trying to get rid of it because it hadn't hadn't been selling i'd originally priced it at like 65 or 70 dollars i finally brought it down to 25 and this woman was like uh please um, charge me 30 because i know how hard artists work i know what the value of art is and so i was so appreciated that anyway all right so <laughs> wow i ended up spending a lot more time talking about that than 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 i intended to um all right lots of other things that um, that I wanted to talk about, and I'm going to run out of time. I'm looking through my notes here. You know, every week as I as I do my show, I think about what I want to um, talk about in my podcast, and um, so that I can then remember to do it. Oh yes, here, here okay. In in underreported news of the week, this you know this should have gotten a lot more attention. Maybe actually, I think it was from last week. Anyway, regardless, l- recently. Um, a report was released that should have gotten so much more attention and it didn't. And this was a report about the number of, uh, this is about the criminal justice system. There's a registry that the University of Michigan keeps track of, uh, that the University of Michigan runs, called the Registry of Exonerations. And basically, um, every year, there's a number of people in various parts of the country through the hard work of lawyers and nonprofit organizations that, you know, say that they've been, unfairly convicted um, and and are serving time for crime they didn't commit, they get some kind of a new evidence, retrial, and they get exonerated, they get freed. And you sometimes you hear these horrible stories, you know, someone incarcerated for 40 years for some crime, you know, murder they never committed. That's basically an exoneration. That's an exoneration. So so this is a National Registry of Exonerations. And, and they reported last year alone, 149 people across the country were exonerated. This is people wrongly convicted, crimes they did not commit, um, you know, obta- the convictions obtained in some cases or in many cases through official misconduct, like horrible, like evidence planting, you know, pe- people basically um, doing everything they can, p- people meaning police and, and the criminal justice system, people working in the justice system doing what they can to put these folks behind bars. Other um, uh, reasons where poor people taking plea bargains just because they couldn't afford bail and they didn't want to spend you know more nights in jail so how it disproportionately impacts poor people and it's an amazing report now of course just the number of exonerations is actually not really a measure of how many wrongful convictions there are it's just a measure of how hard lawyers and others are working to sort through cases and exonerate wrongfully convicted people and the discussion that i had i interviewed the um the person who ran who runs the registries uh, samuel gross who who is um a professor at the university of michigan law school and he he edits the registry and we talked to him he basically said that if you scratch the surface you'll find people that deserve to be exonerated you know if if lawyers look in look anywhere in any judicial system uh or justice system rather criminal justice system or any um system a state prison system you will find and even at the federal level you will find people that have been wrongfully convicted and you will be able to if you go through the process likely exonerate them i mean what does that say about our justice system right what does that say about how many how we are 
treating people. And justice system is supposed to be beyond reproach. I mean, we all know it's not, right? We know that when rich people commit crimes, they hire fancy lawyers and they don't pay, the t- they don't do the time. We know that poor people get disproportionately targeted. But how many of us really imagine, I mean, put yourself, I was trying to put myself in this person's, in, in, the, in the shoes of a person who was wrongfully convicted. It was so hard for me to imagine. You know, you're, you're picked out, you're arrested by the police because someone fingered you about committing some random crime. Um, and you find yourself in this hor- horrifying, life-changing vortex that, you know, you insist you're not guilty, but you are. I mean, you insist you're not guilty, but you aren't, uh, and you aren't guilty. Ah, let me start that over. You insist you're not guilty, but the court thinks you are, and you end up rotting in prison behind bars for something that you didn't do and nobody will believe you and your entire life is ripped away from you your entire being is destroyed um and you're lo- and you're locked up you're disappeared behind bars you I mean, that's what our prisons are they're they're holes into which black holes into which we throw away people and 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 forget about them and people and the rest of the world moves on what what could i mean you'd want to kill yourself right how could i just imagine that so there are 150 nearly 150 people last year in one year alone that were exonerated most of them had served more than 14 years in prison for crimes they didn't commit how many and and the rate of exonerations is going up every year so next year it could be like 200 how many people are serving time in U.S. prisons for crimes they didn't commit. I will leave you with that thought. It's a terrifying thought. And, um, you know, it's just this This is why we need to do the work we do. You know, whether you're an activist, whether you're a journalist like me, whether you're someone who even just signs petitions or, or you know, tries to be outspoken and, and talk to other people about injustices in our world. This is why all of us need to, to do whatever little we can do to raise awareness and to change the world, to join an organization, to become an advocate. If you're a lawyer and you already do this kind of advocacy work, you are a saint, you're an angel. But you know, we all need to do work um, to, to, to kind of end these just horrific, you know, mis, uh, mistakes, <laughs> horrific um, instances of injustice. I, I can't even come up with the right words. Also, I've been talking a half hour nonstop and I'm tired now and <laughs> it's late. And I will say goodnight to all of you and thank you so much for listening to another edition of Uprising Uncut. Um, do share the podcast with your friends. Um, if you know people who listen to Uprising, my show on KPFK and KPFA, and you want to get a little uh, taste of, of my thoughts and my feelings my ideas about the world and about various things that that's not sort of filtered by my formal radio voice <laughs> and uh filtered by the requirements of morning drive time radio then then share it with them it's on itunes and you can get it through my website sonali peace out